Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glasgow at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm joined today by our co-host, Susan Wachter of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. And in this episode, we're going to look at the flip side of last month's special briefing on hot growth areas. And that means taking a deep dive into big cities and some of the fiscal strains that may emerge as federal pandemic aid ends, perhaps if the economy goes into recession or gets hit with a federal debt default. Now, to be sure, city and state revenue and reserves are pretty flush right now, but we are seeing tax revenues start to cool, especially in the states, and many cities are grappling with the impact of inflation, higher interest rates, and work from home, as well as legacy costs that really haven't gone away, especially for underfunded public worker pensions and healthcare. We'll have more on that in a moment. You know, our expert panel is primed and ready to discuss this issue. But first, a few words. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites and also on the Special Briefing Podcast. As always, we've taken your questions in advance. We've got a lot of them and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, Special Briefing is made possible with the generous support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. Our thanks to you all. So let's turn to our panel with cities in the spotlight. Unfortunately, Dick Ravitch won't be able to join us today. So leading off our discussion is Philadelphia's finance director, Rob Dubo, who has presided over an incredible recovery in America's poorest big city. Next, we'll get the view from Chicago with Heather Gillers, Muni reporter at the Wall Street Journal. From upstate New York, please welcome former Syracuse mayor and Volcker Alliance director, Stephanie Miner. And batting cleanup is David Schleicher. Yale Law School professor, municipal bankruptcy maven, and author of In a Bad State, a terrific new book on fiscal distress. And now to get the discussion rolling, let's hand the mic to Susan Walker. Susan? We are here from Philadelphia, and it's my great pleasure to introduce the director of finance, Rob Dubo. Rob Dubo has been the director of finance since 2008. And in these years has made consistent and steady progress, which is remarkable and several upgrades, and a very recent upgrade rewarding his dedication and leadership. I'll leave the details to Rob. We'll talk about the progress and also challenges ahead. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for that introduction, and and thanks for having me here today. So the title of this get-together is Fiscal Distress, and we really don't have any bigger source of, of stress for our budget and our finances than our, our pensions. We were really facing kind of a, we were at a crisis point seven, eight years ago. Um, in less than a decade, our pension costs had gone from about 7% of our budget to about 15%. And that increase in costs wasn't making the fund any healthier. Um, in fact, our funding percent was dropping consistently. It had gone all the way down into the mid 40s. And there were a lot of reasons why that was happening. We have really generous benefit plan, defined benefit plan. Um, we had a mature plan that had more recipients than active members. 
Um, and we were paying the minimum amount required under the state, but nothing more. And everyone knew that something had to be done. And I think that really helped. There was kind of a, a joint commitment to improving the health of our pension fund. So the mayoral administration, unions, state and local elected officials, members of the pension board, um, all worked together to really put together a plan that would help improve the fund's health. So we took actions to both increase our assets and slow the growth in our liabilities, while still making sure we were providing our employees with retirement income. We knew a big part of our challenge was that many of our costs were locked in. I'll talk about in a little later, paying for our unfunded liability was really kind of the largest cost we were facing. So what did we do? We dedicated a portion of an increase in our sales tax, so putting in more money to, to the pension fund. In the proposed five-year plan that we're looking at now, we estimate that sales tax will generate about $500 million for the pension fund um, over the five-year plan. Um, at the same time, employee contributions have increased contributions to the fund, and those increased contributions are dedicated solely to the health of the fund. They don't, they don't offset any of the, the city's contributions. New employees, new non-uniform employees now go into a hybrid pension plan. It still has a defined benefit portion, but that's capped at $65,000. And then it's coupled with um, a defined contribution portion. So that's really slowing the growth in our liabilities. We've also changed the way that we invest. We have moved much more towards uh, indexes, gotten out of hedge funds. That's all helped to cut our investment fees while retaining our, our earnings. So that means that, you know, our assets, money doesn't get drawn from our assets. It's, it's used to pay fees rather than being used to pay fees. We also contribute under something called the revenue recognition policy rather than the minimum amount required by the state. So for FY22, our last full fiscal year, using that revenue recognition policy meant to gain about $128 million to the fund compared to paying the amount required by the state. So all of that has really been working. Our assets have been growing. Our liabilities have been slowing. And our cash flow, the change in our cash position, excluding investment earnings, um, went from being among the worst among public funds to being among the best. We used to be in like the fifth percentile for cash flow. Now we're closer to the 95th. After decades of consistently having negative cash flow, um, we've turned to being consistently positive. We also have started to see our funding percent grow. Our problem, we know it took years to develop, so it won't go overnight, but our funding percent has gone from under 45% to almost 58% in just six years. Our actuary projects that it will be 80% in 2029, 100% by 2023. That they've also run a bunch of stressors to see what um, what would happen if earnings don't go well um, in, the f- in the future. And what they've seen is that um, even if we start to have poor earnings, we'll still get to full funding. It, it might just take longer. They ran 10,000 scenarios. And even in the worst scenarios, we were still getting to 90% funded by 2036. Um, so none of those scenarios what we want to have happen, but obviously we're glad that um, to see we'd still be making progress if we stay on our, our current funding path. And all of that has happened at the same time that 
The pensions have stabilized as a percent of our budget. They have not grown as a percent of our budget um, in the last five to 10 years. And when we get to 100% funding, they'll drop dramatically as a percent of our costs um, because the largest part of our cost by far is the amortization of our unfunded liability. It's about 600 million of about 700 million of pension costs. But while we were doing that, um, getting our pension fund on, on the road to being healthy, started to face another threat, and that, that was the pandemic. Going into the pandemic, um, our economy had been thriving, and we were building up our fund balances to its highest level ever. That obviously all changed in March of 2020, and the pandemic hit, and our, uh, our economy essentially closed. And the impact on us was immediate. Um, in part because we have a tax base that um, is different from tax bases in a lot of jurisdictions. We're really reliant on a wage tax. So that tax is much more sensitive to what goes on in the economy than a property tax. So while other jurisdictions may have seen a lag um, in the hit to their revenues, we saw that right away. And there was a study by Pew that showed we had the second worst revenue impact among large cities. And then actually right before the pandemic hit, we had released our budget for the upcoming year and made the kind of investments we thought were really important to continue us on the path to growth that we'd been enjoying after decades of actually seeing decline. That budget had to be abandoned. And by June, we had to do two more versions of the budget um, just to stay in balance. And things could have been much, much worse without the ARP funding. Uh, we would have had to make even more painful cuts. And, and those cuts would have been not only bad for the city, but really bad for the entire region because we are the economic engine for the region. And our budget balancing actions really probably would have been crippling. The ARP dollars helped us avoid that scenario. We received a lot. We received $1.4 billion, um, but our projected losses from the pandemic were $1.5 billion. Um, so that meant that unlike a lot of other jurisdictions, we had to use all of our money for revenue replacement. We have all of those funds allocated. Uh, they will all be allocated and spent by the end of next calendar year as required by the ARP legislation. One of the big challenges that other cities face is making sure that we don't fall off the fiscal cliff when those dollars go away. I think we're also in a unique position in that we have to do a five-year plan that has to be balanced in each of its years. So as we allocate out our money, we're doing that within the context of a five-year plan. And it was really important for us when we did the plan this year to show that it would be balanced in those last couple of years after the ARP money goes away and that we'd be relatively stable. And we were able to do that. And we've actually seen our fund balances increase over the last couple of years to record highs. So our, you know, our challenge over the next few years is to make sure that we keep those balances up as the dollars go away and that that will be our big focus. And I think I'll, I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much, Rob. We will have a, a number of questions for you and for the panel, but let's go to our next panelist. We're very pleased to have with us again, Heather Gilliers of the Wall Street Journal, who also has insights into Chicago, another city with uh, long-term issues, but nonetheless recent improvement because of steady progress in their pension problems. Go ahead, please, Heather. Yeah, Chicago, you know, as you said, Susan, there's just been an, an upgrade by um, Moody's Investor Service. Uh, that was a long time coming. And it's uh, a recognition of a lot of work the city has done to kind of get its 
physical house into better shape than it has been in a really long time, in large part having to do with pensions. You know, this the city in many ways had, I feel like I'm echoing some of what, what Rob said, there was a history of not paying sufficient amounts into the into the pension fund, very poorly funded. Um, you know, by by Moody's accounting, it's about six hundred or sorry, about sixty billion in in pension liabilities for the city alone, and another twenty eight billion in bond debt. But the coming budget year, the city is going to have a a budget gap of of just just eighty five million dollars, which is actually very small by Chicago standards. And there's been some other sort of cleanup of various other practices like borrowing to build budget gaps and borrowing to pay off debt, for the most part, um, have been eradicated and got rid of its derivatives. So so you have real real signs of progress there, despite a, a very, very heavy relative to other cities pension burden. Um, and, the, and the upgrades are, are a reflection of that. So that's kind of how the city is, is now coming into this current period of the pandemic, which, you know, again, as Rob said, is sort of like the next challenge here. And, um, you know, I should say that this these payments will need to continue at high levels into the pension fund for um, the city to to maintain and to climb out from under this pension debt. So so you have this this pretty significant expense as Chicago and other cities but for Chicago, that expense is higher, start to go and weather into this next period where, you know, you have a possible recession, you have the impact of remote work on city revenues, you have the expiration of the federal stimulus aid that, you know, that was handed out during COVID. So that's sort of an, a new chapter in a lot of ways. And Chicago, and, and I would say across the country, like cities are in are in good shape relative to where they've been over the past 10 to 15 years to weather that storm. There's a lot of, and states as well, budget reserves built up. But, you know, now you have this question, like in Chicago and also in other places of, of what is happening downtown. People are, transit ridership is 50%, 30% San Francisco, maybe up to 75% in some places, but really not back to where it once was. Key card data shows about 50% occupancy in offices downtown. That there's some amazing cell phone data now showing how much people are downtown. And again, like really around half-ish of where it was, if that. And people know this firsthand from, from walking around downtowns themselves. There's concern about just not as much many people on the street, about crime, about policing. Obviously, you know, we have Chicago is one of several cities under a consent decree. Um, related to minority rights being violated. So there's a lot to work out there. And I think the big mystery really is what's going to happen with downtown property values, because that's such a significant source of, of property tax revenue for so many cities. And we it's such a slow process, learning exactly what is going to happen with those values, you know, the properties have to be assessed and then the tax bill has to be calculated. And we're already seeing some buildings appeal their values, but there are all sorts of rules about assessed value that make it not necessarily the same as market value. So we really don't know what's going to happen in terms of commercial property tax revenues. And that's that's a really big question for, for cities, I think, right now, Chicago and other cities. And, you know, as as Bill referenced, we do have those those legacy liabilities pressuring those cities. We have moves that have taken place during the pandemic where people have moved away from 
San Francisco and from other cities. And that in some ways is sort of compounding regional trends that we were seeing before COVID, where we were seeing growth in the South and West. All that has implications for city budgets. So a lot of interesting stuff going on, both in Chicago and elsewhere. And I think like a lot of questions. Thanks, Heather. And we're going to get back to the issues of, of, of pensions and pension funding later, I hope. Also, Chicago got a new mayor. Philadelphia is about to get a new mayor. So we want to probably ask you all about changes in strategy. But in the meantime, this is a reminder that you're tuned into Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. The archived edition of this and all past Special Briefings can be found on our websites or on the Special Briefing podcast. And now let's welcome Mayor Stephanie Miner, who has been through dark times in Syracuse and now teaches public finance at Colgate. Stephanie, please. Thank you, Bill. I just want to add on and really give some more context to what both Rob and Heather were saying. As we think about this challenge that faces mayors and executives in cities, I think it is helpful for the context. Remember, cities are service delivery organizations. That's what they do. And so what the stimulus, what it was planned to do and and what it did in many cases was a tide to keep cities afloat. But to not continue to use the, the Buffett metaphor, the tide is going out. So many cities particularly what we think about is our traditional urban places in the Northeast that have strong mayor forms of government in blue states or highly regulatory states have these same crises facing them once again. And they're the crisis of whether you say legacy costs or unfunded liabilities, both pensions and something that nobody really wants to talk about because it is so hugely immense, which is retiree health care. When I was facing this after the Great Recession, Dick Ravitch, who couldn't unfortunately couldn't be with us today, said to me, ironically, but nevertheless, it drove home the message. He said, kid, it's not that hard. You either got to cut your expenses or you got to increase your revenues. That's how you balance a budget. But of course, it is extraordinarily difficult, starting with the latter. You can't cut expenses, pensions, because in most states or in states like Illinois, New York, New Jersey, they are guaranteed by the Constitution. So when you hear people talking about cutting pension benefits, in many cases, when you read between the lines, what you're seeing is that they are cutting the benefits of the unborn. People are going to retire 20, 30 years from now. That's not going to help in this most recent crisis. But it's a way to say, okay, we started to get serious um, about that. And in terms of increasing revenues, well, every politician, even Democrats like myself, hates increasing revenues, particularly mayors, because we're on the forefront of it. And we have in uh, the United States today, a concentration of poor people and challenged people living in cities. And so when you say, okay, we're gonna increase revenues, And then you say to people, we're going to increase it for a benefit like a pension to pay for a service that many of these people living in the cities or who are take or who would be paying this don't get. Let's not forget that there are most Americans are not getting defined benefit pension benefits. Most Americans are not getting retiree health care. So to turn to those and particularly in a city like Syracuse. Or I would venture to say in Philadelphia that has a high poverty as well, to turn to those people and say, we're asking you to pay even more when we have this tremendous income uh, inequity to pay for a benefit for a benefit that you don't have and you never thought you would be entitled to is extraordinarily excruciatingly difficult. And again, 
going back to cities or service delivery organizations. So you're saying to these people, we're going to ask you to pay for a benefit that you don't have and a benefit that you're not really going to get the benefit of paying for because it's a pension or because it's retiree health care. So it's really a extraordinarily difficult scenario to maneuver through. And again, this is particularly for cities that are traditional, strong mayor forms of cities in blue states, in cities where you have sort of less regulatory environment. You may not have as big a problem, but all you have to do is look at Texas and Dallas and Houston. Their cities have had major problem problems as well. So you're going to have leaders who are really forced to make very difficult decisions at the time when their revenues are unstable at best, or maybe even going down because the model of how we go to work and how we pay taxes and how we think about that is changing. The last part of this that I will sort of add, the last layer that I will add on to this is that as interest rates have increased, you're going to see cities have less and less ability to borrow, which means they're going to have less and less money to make capital improvements or to replenish their fire trucks, their roads, their snow plows. I always have to mention that as the former mayor of Syracuse. All of those things that, again, help with the quality of life issues. They're just not going to be able to get as many as they can because of that. So you're going to have pressure on that side as well. And just as you mentioned and Heather mentioned, we can almost see this most particularly acute right now with the issue about policing in our cities and crime. It is a huge front issue for anybody who is running for mayor or who is mayor right now. In some cases, people are saying there's a 30% vacancy rate in police departments across the country. So you're going to want people who are mayor or who are running about mayor, thinking about being that, are going to want to increase those coffers. And police are the the most expensive service that you can provide. And they also, generally speaking, are able to retire in shorter periods than others. And as we have the baby boom, they're going to be going through this as well. So I will sort of end where I began and say to all of you, it's really not that difficult. You just have to cut revenues, um, excuse me, increase revenues and cut expenses. It's just virtually impossible to do that in a cycle that will help get through this. Well, thank you, Stephanie. And that's a that's a perfect uh, segue to David, because these are the matters you deal with in your book and in your work at Yale University Law School. So give us some reaction and in, in your, in your thank path you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I, I think the best place to start is where Bill started us off, which is that we're in a moment of inflection right now. That is to say, we've been living through this period of flush state and local budgets. Um, uh, and we're about to see a real turn. Um, and the, we could use that to look forward as many of our, we also use it to look backward to say, how good a boom did we have? And what, how does that set us up for, uh, the coming, the coming difficulties? Um, this, First, on the moment of inflection, this is coming sooner than anyone thought. Um, uh, revenues have already started falling in most major states, and federal aid is not only going to dry up, it may be pulled back. One of the things we saw in some of the negotiations over the debt limit is President Biden's willingness or accepts that he willings to withdraw some money that had been promised under the ARP. So we're at this real moment, and it's coming really quickly. And so now is the time, if we're ever going to do it, to say, like, what happened during this period? And 
The reason it's important is that for lots of governments, where some governments have been subject to come some asymmetric shocks, your as Heather noted, your railing commuter lines and that what have you, transit agencies. But for lots of governments, we're going to find out whether they used the boom responsibly or whether they didn't. That is to say, there was this huge surge in federal money and in many jurisdictions, though not all, kind of big increases in volatile revenue in the last couple of years, even from before the pandemic for some some of them. Um, and did they use this? surge to fund one-time investments that matched the fact that the revenue was volatile and did they or did they save large large amounts of it or alternately did they spend the last few years cutting taxes and creating new spending programs policies that will be hard to reverse in the future at the moment it's really hard to tell because that is itself a prediction of the future that is to say is it hard to reverse in the future is a question that we can't answer this period we can only answer you know in the future um but one thing I think we can look at is um, there's obviously been a lot of variation. There's a lot of states and a lot of thousands of local governments. Um, but is we can look back at the federal policies that were enacted and ask, did they encourage good responses to one-time revenues or not? Uh, as Bill notes, I have a new book, um, and it's all focused on the history of this. That is to say, what has the federal government done, and then how should it respond to state and local fiscal crises from Alexander Hamilton through COVID. I think the question, the part of it we should focus on here is what did the federal government do with its aid? How did it structure its aid? Um, And was it appropriate? Was it smart? How should we think about it? And so, you know, I think my take on this is that the record is somewhat mixed. Federal aid in crises is really important for certain purposes. It produces good, it helps produce good macroeconomic outcomes that is a it forestalls recessions. And it also ensures the security of bond markets, uh, creating a healthy funding source for needed infrastructure for jurisdiction over the absence of defaults that it helps. But as the traditional argument goes, it helps create moral hazard um, or an assumption on the, on the behalf of politicians, um, and probably more importantly, on behalf of bond markets, that in any future crisis will be matched by federal aid, and thus will be no responsibility going forward. The way, first thing to ask about the ARP aid and how it sets us up for this period is to note that all choices facing the federal government when a state, state and local governments get in trouble are bad. That is to say, federal aid, that kind of crisis era aid, has downsides, but so do its alternatives. So if we'd encourage greater austerity in, this, in, in state local governments, that would have created real macroeconomic costs. And if there had been defaults, that would have been really bad for not only the jurisdictions defaulting, but for other jurisdictions as well, um, which would have been a little retraction in lending. And over Amer- the course of American history, the federal government has chosen among these bad choices. The, one of the things that is within our control, though, is how bad one of our choices ends up being. That is to say, for any one of these policies, we can choose better and worse versions of them. And so to my idea that the central problem with the aid during the COVID era period was not its existence. As Rob noted, it was really, really important for a lot of jurisdictions, although perhaps not for Philadelphia, but for many other jurisdictions, there's probably too much. It was probably too big and to help contribute to inflation somewhat. But the flaw in the proposal was its lack of conditions. Federal aid, either emergency aid or constant flows of funds, could in theory be leveraged to encourage states to engage in more responsible fiscal policy going forward or to use the money responsibly or to engage in better accounting processes or other things. The ARP aid particularly had extremely few conditions on it. And in fact, the one major condition that was put on the ARP aid, which was that it not be used for tax cuts, was thrown out by courts for being stated for with insufficient clarity and therefore being unconstitutional or illegal. And so I think that if you want to look back at this period and ask questions about how we structure the aid, you could ask questions about the amount, but you could also ask questions about 
could there have been more strings attached to the money? One idea that is, you know, I think controversial, but I think correct, is that we could have encouraged jurisdictions to adopt the model that Connecticut ended up adopting during the crisis. Connecticut's one of the great fiscal success stories of the pandemic era. And one of the major reasons why that's coming into it as one of our great basket cases, before the pandemic, Connecticut put into its bonds something called bond lock or covenants that limit its its spending and particularly impose a volatility cap on revenue that's enforceable by individual bondholders. And the idea here is that it forces the government to save revenue from volatile sources like capital gains. Federal policy could have encouraged states to engage in these types of policies, and maybe that specific policy, as a way of both reducing the moral hazard. That is to say, we're going to give you money, but it's not strings attached, and maybe you'll be less inclined to believe that it's going to come with with no strings in the future, but also as a way to encourage better policy going forward. At this moment of inflection, we're going to see how many jurisdictions, without the push from the federal government, behaved responsibly or not. And we're going to go go on to questions. So, so thank you. Uh, thank you very much, David. Uh, panelists, if you wouldn't mind turning on your mics and your cameras, and then I'm going to ask my good friend Susan Wachter to, to, to kick off the questions of which we have a ton. Yes, and I'm going to start with a very general question of what are the metrics that cities live and die by? That is, and it's a question from Nathan Bosick of HUD. Basic question, but I think quite important. And then we can segue to current issues. But how do city governments track their success? Bond ratings for sure. How else? Perhaps we can start with you, Rob. So I think there are two separate things in that question. One is kind of financial, but you know, as the mayor said, we're service organizations. So we really have to measure how we're performing with our service. So bond rating, clearly a good measure, but I think also things like crime rates, you know, and perceptions of of safety, educational outcomes. I think, you know, we really want to look at the things that are important. And we have like run-of-the-mill things that are very important to you, like what percent of the time do you have the trash picked up? So I think it's kind of a, a range of things that we look at to make sure we're successful. But, you know, bond rating is a good one. Safety is a really important one. So I'll, I'll be back and, and push this a little bit more. But Stephanie, go ahead. So I was going to say, Susan and Rob, just to, to push back, I actually don't think I was very proud that we, when I was mayor, we raised our bond rating, very pleased with it, worked really hard to do it and keep it at a stable rate. But fundamentally, I don't think it mattered at all to my constituents. And I think if it did matter to the constituents of cities across the United States, you wouldn't see cities have bond ratings that flame out like they have. What really matters to constituents is the services you provide, as, as Rob said. Now, there are professional constituents of cities Clearly, if you can't go to market and borrow to buy fire trucks or police cars, that is a problem. So as a leader, you have to have a good a good bond rating in order to do that. But day in and day out, what I think the citizens are looking at is what I was always told, the 20-foot rule. They walk outside their door, and if the services within 20 feet are working and predictable, they're happy. Mayor, you're doing a great job. We love you. And if that means that you have to borrow or you have perhaps done pension bonds or done all of these other, look at Detroit, all these other fiscal gimmicks to get you to a place where you can get those services, even though you know that in a year or two years or five years, it's going to be a death knell for the city. The political pressures and incentives are such 
that that's what you're going to be thinking about. Crime rates, picking up trash, removing snow, is the water on? When you call 911, are you going to get a predictable response? You look like you were raising your hand there for, for a minute. Was I, was I right about that? I think the public servants on this panel are doing a great job with this question. I would just add one metric, which is population. I think people vote with their feet, and it's a lot harder to keep a city financially on the up and up if you're losing residents. That's a good point, especially in Chicago and in Illinois. Susan, can I, I, I want to ask a related question, a follow-up question. Chase Johnson from UBS, longtime player in the muni business, you know, he, he's asking us about, about the debt ceiling. And we're wondering about what, what preparations are being made. You know, if we hit the debt ceiling, that's that's one thing. What happens to cities' finances? The other question is, well, if we avoid the debt ceiling and we have some kind of a deal that pulls federal aid back, maybe put, put strings on aid, various aid to poor people. What then? Uh, how, how are people preparing for this, for this event? And I, you know, I'll give it to Rob first. I mean, part of it is the immediate thing that we'd be worried about is, is what it means for cash. If we see a cut in, in federal aid, so part of it is making sure that we're in a, in a good cash position. Part of it, obviously, is you know talking to our lobbyists to make sure that you know some of the bad things are, are less likely to happen. Also, making sure that we can make the case for things that are art money that it really is committed and that you know it's being put to important and good use. Heather, do you have any sense what the what the new mayor in Chicago what the fiscal strategy is short term and and, and long term? Yeah, we're all kind of waiting to hear. I mean, he has a sort of raft of revenue raising ideas that were thrown out as part of his campaign. And I think like that's going to get taken up by the city council and by the, sometimes the legislature has to, the state legislature has to be drawn in to discussions about taxes or um, sort of other financial things that Chicago wants to do. So, you know, I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation. And you know, to your other point about the debt ceiling, like that's just any kind of uncertainty or like, like is, I mean, I think in 2011, it was the same. Nobody liked it. Everyone was freaked out about going to the bond market, even though everything, you know, ended without a default. So we may very well have an immediate problem in our future, which is the debt ceiling. We'll be taking this up in our next uh, special briefing, but slightly longer term, uh, but still within the year horizon, is a possibility of a recession. To what degree is a recession or a very slow growth already incorporated in funding expectations in large cities and large cities with, with great poverty, such as Philadelphia? And let's start with Philadelphia. Rob, to what degree um, is a recession already incorporated into your expectations? Yeah, so when we put together our budget and our five-year plan, we work with an outside econometric firm, and we also meet with economists down at the Fed and, and get their feelings about what's going to happen over the next year and over the next couple of years. And we did build into our projections that there would be, and we would call it recession or, you know, real slowdown in growth, uh, but that's built in. So we assume that's going to be hitting us within, you know, the next, actually we have it within the next few months. So we definitely assume that in our projections. And if I may ask, what is the improvement? And what is it Moody's that that rated you better? And what is the and what's the yeah, impact? Yeah, Moody's. 
upgraded us from A2 to A1, and Saturn Report changed our outlook from changed our outlook to positive. And part of it is what's happened with pensions, and part of it is that our our fund balances have gone up to to record highs. And, and part of the the point that we make when we look at those fund balances and, and talk to people here is that there is an economic slowdown coming, that the art money is going away, and that if we don't have reserves as we go into that, we're going to have really significant problems. And if I may, just for another minute, uh, the, the ARP funding, to what degree is this improvement due to the ARP funding? And to what degree is it just other decisions have been made longer run? I think I know, but can you address that? Yeah. So the ARP money definitely helps. Without the ARP money, we'd be looking at deficits rather than positive fund balances, or we'd be looking at having to make lots of budget balancing decisions that would be really detrimental for our region. Um, we've also... But that's seen, going away, and presumably Moody's and SP know that. You know, the, the rating agencies generally know that. We've also you know, seen improvements in our in our tax revenues. Bill and I were talking about this beforehand. They so far have been holding up for us, except for one tax that's based on, on real estate transactions. But, so but again, perhaps well what what would happen i know philadelphia's unusual is a wage tax so if the property taxes down you're not so exposed right right one of the things that's really holding holding everything together is that consumers and especially upper income consumers americans still have a lot of a lot of extra savings that were built up during uh during covid when they weren't going out there was a lot of money flowing through the economy for the payroll protection plan, various income supports. So pe- pe- people weren't going out. They weren't. They weren't going to, to theaters. They weren't traveling because they couldn't. They're now doing it. They're they're spending it. But it's you know we've got a ways to go on that. Our friend Torsten Slick has, has, has pointed this out. Mark Sandy has pointed this out. Maybe we'll have a cataclysmic end to this. We we just don't know. But it's it is keeping things supported. But I wanted to ask a, a, a follow for Stephanie and, and David. Stephanie, you're you're teaching students about municipal governance at, at Colgate. David, you're teaching you're teaching soon to be lawyers about about municipal stress. What's your perception of how well cities are preparing for the next phase? Uh, what they should be doing to help insulate themselves against uh, against shocks. Well, as, as somebody who is uh, a former politician, I, I have a, a sort of a politician type answer to this, which is politicians are are managing in the day to day and trying to put out fires. And yes, they really successful leaders think the longer term. But, you know, the pandemic is just so unprecedented and the challenges to cities were just challenges on steroids. So many of my friends who are still mayors are just still sort of recovering from what they went through. So to be able to, you know, I answer this and to say, like, they just went through the unthinkable. And to say to them, like, well, why aren't you thinking now about more unthinkable or, or why haven't you prepared for more is, is somewhat unfair to them. As a, as a professor, what I will tell you is this, there is this duality where the students are all, they all want to move to cities. They all want to live in cities. And yet they look at the problems with cities and they are very, very frustrated with politics and politicians or elected officials' ability to solve problems. They just, they are as cynical as any group of people I've ever met. 
Amazing. David, what, what do you see? Uh, I would say my students are as earnest as any group of people I've ever met. So I will, but it's a, uh, I would say that I, it's a little hard to say. And the, it's not hard. It's hard to say because the central challenge that's created during booms is creating things that are hard to change in busts. And some of that is in money in the bank. So if you have a bigger rainy day fund or you have a better better pension funding position, you're better insulated. But other things are, can't have you hired a lot of people that you're not going to politically be able to fire? Or have you cut taxes in a way that you're not going to be able to deal with? Or alternately, are you counting on some you know, like you haven't revalued your property tax, your commercial property tax, because you're continually expecting people to come back to the office, which they may or may not do increasingly. It certainly seems like we're going to see really substantial declines in commercial. And so a lot of the question is, I mean, as with most things, it's much easier to see in the rearview mirror than looking forward. Um, the one thing I'll say is that like, um, I wouldn't put too much stock in bond ratings as the one evidence of success here. It's almost all almost all low-rated but did well, have done well in the pandemic. And that could be for one of two reasons. One is because they've all been very responsible. And another one is they're pricing in some degree of expectations of increasing future future federal aid. That is to say, when we talk about moral hazard, it's really not operating through politicians, which is how most people generally think of it, that politicians are, that requires a much longer time horizon than anyone believes politicians have, but it's acting through lenders who are the ones who have the longer time horizons that might expect future federal aid. And so the thing I'd say is like how, how good assumptions they're making, they're making assumptions about things that are not purely technical. They're making assumptions about politics as well as doing technical analysis. And I respect all the people who work there, but you know, I think that if you think that anyone is that good at predicting politics, I think you are overrating their capacities. Let's turn to Heather with that. If bond ratings are looking towards potential federal additional aid, Heather, where do you see in terms of the federal government and its support for cities and going forward? That's an interesting question. I think it depends. I think the answer depends a little bit on what part of the city you're talking about. Like transit systems um, are in a situation right now where they're really, I mean, I hear the word cliff used a lot. They have been, they've been getting a bunch of federal aid and that's about to run out. And so, you know, I think that's going to create a situation where there's pressure or expectation from some investors, from some public officials or riders for the federal government to step in. And, and it's a sort of a, a contained um, problem. Um, so I guess maybe a hot spot, like, and I, so I think, you know, that's the kind of thing where maybe it's, it's more likely for you to see some kind of intervention, whereas like across cities in the way that you saw during COVID, where it was just like a, a huge stop the bleeding campaign. I mean, that seems to be coming to an end. I'll give you an example from almost today's news. By the the Volcker Alliance is is doing a, a special webinar on Monday the twenty second, a new paper on uh, New York City's revenue uh, called Revenue at Risk. And uh, if you haven't received an invitation to that, please please join us for that. But the the New York City Independent Budget Office, which is the the, the equivalent to a legislative uh, a legislative budget office in a state. They came out with their take on the mayor's long-term budget projections and his current budget. And there's, I'm just reading the numbers. They're showing federal categorical grants, which is basically the, the bulk of the bulk of federal aid to the city, 
uh, declining from 11 billion and in, in change in 2023 to uh, 7.3 million, 7.3 billion uh, in each years in 26 and 27. So aid is going to kind of level off to uh, to, a, to a much lower pace. And federal aid to New York City has has really been declining for for many many years as as a percentage of of expenditures. So uh, I, I don't think with with this Congress and maybe the next Congress we're we're going to see uh, any kind of of a huge upswell in operating funds. There's capital money coming from the from the infrastructure bill uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act, but uh, and and that may. That may help build new streets and bridges and rail lines, but it won't necessarily pay for the operating costs. So I really do think cities need to cities that aren't growing need to prepare for uh, a lot less external funding. And cities that are growing, the, the Sunbelt cities we dealt with last last uh, last month, they're going to benefit from increasing population, uh, which is going to raise almost uh, it's going to raise their costs, but it's going to raise their revenues as well. Yeah, the thing I'd add to that really quickly is to say um, is to say that one of the things I think you might see some frustration of federal goals coming in this new period of somewhat fiscal retrenchment. The federal government clearly wants states and cities to build a lot more infrastructure. That's what the infrastructure bill is about. They wanted or at least to maintain their existing infrastructure better than they were. And they want all, a variety of supportive investment for green energy transition and what have you. And, you know, I want those things too. But in an era of fiscal retrenchment, you're going to see states attempting to shift their budgets away from supportive, supporting those capital investments towards their operating expenses in any way they can. There are all these maintenance of effort rules, but the, the states state and cities are quite good at getting around those things. And so um, I think you're going to see some conflict in goals between the federal government and state governments in this kind of next and, period. And David, let's just take that point of state. We talked about the relationship of the federal government to cities. To what degree are states going to assist cities? To what degree is there a conflict there, depending on blue and red, perhaps? And perhaps we can start, uh, Stephanie, with you on that. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, th- one of the interesting things about looking at fiscal distress from the long, the long stray of American history is that state for me, that states are sometimes aiding cities and sometimes they're intentionally sloughing off responsibility on them to make them default. And so they've done both over time. And so my favorite example of this is that at one point, the city of Mobile uh, Alabama was heavily indebted, and the state wanted to help it get out from its debt, so it created a new city called Port of Mobile that would had all of the power to tax Mobile, and the creditors were left suing a jurisdiction that had no ability to raise taxes. Um, and the Supreme Court just said, that's unconstitutional. We don't even know why, but that's unconstitutional. And so over history, we've had a lot of interest. And I think that one type of stress that we might see in our period of kind of very heavy state-local conflict, particularly in some states, is that jurisdictions might choose, uh, some state jurisdictions may choose not to help cities in fiscal distress, which would cause them to face you know more fiscal distress. Think of the story of Jefferson County in Alabama in the post uh, 2008 period that the the state pulled back effectively the story is a little more complicated pulled back the ability to raise taxes which is what the precipitating factor in its default traditionally we've thought that states want cities to avoid default cities of states have to approve local bankruptcy filings under federal bankruptcy law. And we've generally thought states don't want to do that because they're worried about the contagion problem. That is to say, one jurisdiction's default negatively affecting other jurisdictions in the state or even more broadly. But it's possible polarization trumps contagion. We also have states 
right now, state legislators preempting cities. Uh, yeah. Rob, I know that's an issue for for Philadelphia. It's certainly an issue in 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 Nashville and all the in all the, the Texas cities. But you've experienced this in in Pennsylvania, right? We have, but I think Stephanie wanted to say something, so I'm going to let her go. Okay, please. But, so I, I would just would tell you that in a time of scarcity, everybody is on their own. So the governor is going to look to the mayors, even if they're of the same party, even if they're friends, and be like, hey, I got my own problems. You take care of your problems. And, you know, I, I was vice president, then Vice President Biden spoke in front of the U.S. Conference of Mayors in 2010. And he stood up and he said, I know you all hated the way that we handed out recession aid because it all went to the states. And I've known you all have told me that the states kept it. So that is in President Biden's psyche. And I think the federal government this time will turn and say, hey, local officials, we gave you the ARPA funding and we made sure you got it, that the states weren't able to intercept it. And you've had more federal funding than anybody else ever had. So stop whining. Now, there are certain cities that have uh, a lot of political capital or a lot of cachet and that their New York City being a classic example, if New York City underperforms, the country overperforms, the state underperforms. So they have more ability to really have powered this. But those who are below that, again, it's, it's everybody's going to be out for themselves. And I don't think that in the political climate we're in, that there's anybody who's going to be able to, to make a successful argument saying, give me more money. Great point. Rob, did, yeah, you, know, so- you were talking about... Pennsylvania and preemption. So actually, there was a a bill that just moved through the state Senate here that would effectively eliminate our ability to um, tax commuters, which would cost us as much as two hundred million dollars a year. So it may never become law, but and to your point, those kind of things are being discussed and could be really damaging to local governments. I mean, one thing I. Sorry, one thing I add is that some jurisdictions have done more dramatic things. So tech, Florida passed a rule that that local governments are on the hook for regulations or fit or responsible. There's a, you, can, you can sue them for regulations that uh, have harmed businesses too much. And that's creating a new type of liability for cities. It's like a, sometimes called super preemption laws. Well that, well, that is sobering. I want to be, before we go back to the short run in closing, let's just take a quick moment since we have several questions on the role of monitoring. Rob, quickly to you, how useful has been monitoring of Philadelphia and in terms of its uh, success, long run success that we've seen to this date at least? Yeah. So we have a, dating back to the 1990s, a state oversight authority that has to sign off on our five-year plans and say that they use reasonable assumptions in showing that they're balanced. It's been really helpful for us. It's helpful to have another set of eyes. It's also helpful, I mean, for us in finance that there's validation. There's someone else saying, yeah, things like fund balances are are actually really important. Um, And having balances over multiple years are, are really important. And we actually just extended it through 2047. And New, New Jersey, New Jersey, New York, also, uh, in, I'm, I'm missing one in there, but New Jersey and New York and North Carolina also have pretty intensive municipal monitoring oversight. New York State has control boards, which sometimes work well, sometimes not, but the, the controller's office also also monitors uh, local finances. How did that work out for you, Stephanie, in, in Syracuse? So thankfully, because of some really difficult decisions, we never approached that point where we would have to have intervention. It was always a helpful threat when we were making really difficult decisions. And I was telling 
my senior staff that we would have to do that, that I had this other cudgel to say, hey, if we don't do this, the state's going to come in. But the history of New York State is when they have come in with these financial control boards, they bring a bunch of cash in Nassau County and in Buffalo. And then what they do is they are able to effectively stop the accrual of labor costs. And so over time, the city is sort of able to catch up to that. And this was uh, notably, and and, uh, perhaps David knows more about this than I do, this was notably done in Buffalo. The firefighters and the police sued, they lost. But again, query in this time that we're living in, does any mayor want to go up against police officers and, and be in that kind of relationship with them when crime is such a huge issue in cities? And it's a very good point. And I think we're going to have to end there because we're just about to the top of the hour. We can debate this for another two hours, but that's for another day. So if our production team could get the contact slide up so all of our audience can see how to contact our, our great panelists, that would be uh, that would be wonderful. And while they do that, I'm just going to say it's a wrap for another special briefing. If you want to contact the panelists and our team, there's the info up on your screen right now. I'm sure they'd all welcome hearing from you. Thank you so much, Susan. And thanks to all of our panelists and to our wonderful audience for joining us today. Special briefing will be, will be back on Thursday, June 15th, probably looking at the at the fallout from the debt ceiling mess. Watch your websites and your email for details. And also, uh, please join the Volcker Alliance Monday the 22nd for a, a special webinar on New York City's uh, New York City Revenue Risk. The paper will be coming out shortly. Um, other thanks. Thank you to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. And special thanks to our production team, our great production team, Graham Dowd, Noah Winn-Ritzenberg, Adalis Foster, Steve Klee, Kate Nicoletti, Amy Montgomery, Diana Lind, and Arden Jordan. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.